I wonder how many years we are out from Vladimir Putin just straight up declaring a crusade and just like going at it. We'll see. We'll see. I, I was actually uh, I was swing dancing with uh, a girl who is um, a Fulbright scholar from Russia. And it I would have been that. better if you had said I was swing dancing with Vladimir Putin. I was like, okay, <laughs> that would have been, admittedly been pretty amazing, although I would have been wait, terrified. No, Wait, back up. You, you, you met this Fulbright student from Russia? Yeah, she's from Russia. She's in America for a year teaching Russian. Um, wow. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, she, she's pretty cool. Um, and uh, I mentioned they were, we were swing dancing to Istanbul, not Constantinople. Nice. And I jokingly said, like, yeah, my Orthodox friends are all convinced that Putin's going to, like, take over Constantinople. And she just laughed, like, oh, my gosh, Putin's, like, insane, blah, blah, blah. Hopefully Putin doesn't hear this and then like execute her and her family. Fingers crossed. Good. Yeah, so I met right. someone at church the other day who was talking about how much they liked Putin because he was rebuilding churches. And I'm like, yes. what? No, he's so Putin. nationalistic and he's just manipulating the religion to like do evil things. What yeah, are you talking about? He's a KGB thug. Like there is nothing. <laughs> yeah. He's, like, no, he's, sure he's instant... definitely shot people in basements before. Oh, oh 100%. Yeah. So did Constantine, you, 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 take with, you, you take what you can get. Uh, well, that's no, but... certainly true. Like, you do take the despots that are, like, bringing about incidental goods, but I feel like that's every single despot has brought, like, one thing that was decent. Listen, in Putin's Russia, like, I'm not saying that that the only thing left for Christendom is in neo-imperial Russia, but in Russia, there was a YouTuber slash TikToker or, or, or something uh, who... It's not a great he... start of that saying, sentence. Well... It is where they end up because they they uh, did some some offensive uh, miming sex acts in front of a church and took pictures of it, and they just got like ten months in prison. It's great, beautiful. Well said. Okay, that is very good. Who's imperialistic Russia? Let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, here we are, all about to get ready to move to neo-imperialist uh, Putin's Christendom Russia. Uh, but how are we doing, folks? Doing good? It's, it's a Saturday. It's much earlier th- than we normally talk. Yeah, I mean, for once, we're, we're not going to go into like 11 o'clock in the evening where we're all just tired and want the, the pod to be done. Listen, delirious ramblings are what the audience are here to hear, and I don't know if we're exhausted enough for that. That's a fair point. I did stay up until like 2.30 last night, so I mean, maybe some of the exhaustion will carry uh, on. So did we. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. Uh, but gentlemen, what are we drinking right now? Well, not surprisingly, I'm drinking a cup of coffee to, you know, maintain some level of consciousness. Sam? Yeah, I'm back to my old classic, the Moroccan mint green tea. I found mm. it again at Trader Joe's, and it's it's so good. So a little bit of that honey, good. Yeah, nice and That's warm. Great. Yeah, yeah. I need to. I, I feel like I have mint tea somewhere, but I need to to whip it mint up. Actually, green tea. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and with as, honey, honey with hot drinks. That's just an excellent combination, right there. It mm-hmm. is. It is indeed. Uh, as for myself, uh, I need to go grab it from the fridge. But in a second, I will be drinking some fizzy water, as is my want. Because as long as there is fizzy water in the house, I do not drink regular water. And then once it's gone, I don't drink anything. So uh that's that'll be this this afternoon and this podcast um but i believe we are almost to the end of the book that we're currently on ideas of consequences by richard m weaver uh we're almost there we just have the final two chapters chapter eight the power of the word and chapter nine piety and justice uh and i believe sam 
and Stephen will be covering those. Uh, but just before we get into that, uh, so what do we think? Uh, do do ideas have consequences? Yeah, I think he makes a compelling case for that. Although I think we all thought that before we read the book. So, I mean, I'm not sure how much changing of our minds. It just done. shows how influential he is. Touche. We, yeah, he was uh, m- much like in the prayer of St. Patrick. You know, God is before us, behind us, above us, around us. Uh, Richard Weaver was the same thing. He was before and, and, and he was after. He is, he, he's like the force, uh, you know, sur- surrounds us and binds us and pull- holds all living things together. But anyway, uh, who has chapter eight? <laughs> I do. Um, I've got chapter eight, which is uh, the power of the word. So his core thesis of this chapter is that language must have meaning, and it cannot merely be describing sensations, but it must be actually describing things. Um, language does have the power to control things, uh, and we see this both now and also historically. Uh, language has been traditionally connected to some sort of divine power. And he goes into a bit of the Christian tradition about God speaking creation into existence and about Christ being the word and salvation coming through accepting the word. Um, He he asserts that language is super personal, which I thought was a very fascinating point. It's one of the few things that can unite people across their subjectivity. So it transcends our lines between individuals and can unite people. Modernity makes the move towards semantics. And uh, we move from ideas to uh, psychological figments and words become useful signs. Uh, semantics is connected, of course, to nominalism. And he has this great quote on page 137 where he says that, quote, they desire language to reflect not conceptions of verities, but qualities of perceptions, so that man may, by the pragmatic theory of success, live more successfully, end quote. He's tying together a lot of his other arguments throughout this book about utilitarianism, about how everything is systematized, about all this, about um, the stent into modernism, and it concludes with language being used for that purpose and not for actual um, meaning uh, conveyance. It says, quote, every form is accompanied by an inclination. Thus saying that, yes, language does um, connect to forms, and those forms do have inclinations. However, semantics is attempting to separate these two aspects by speaking only to the inclinations, um, and thus by grounding all meaning in external reality. Uh, you, words can mean whatever you want them to mean when you detach them from universals, and you're merely looking at what your feeling is about that other thing side of you. He quotes Korzybski at great length, where he talks about how semantics arrive at undefined terms always. You're always going to get into circular reasoning, where you're defining, one example of this is defining space by length, and then length in terms of space. You haven't actually defined anything. You've just gotten into a circular reasoning pattern. And Korzybski points out that when you point this out to someone, who is using circular definitions, they'll get very frustrated. They will get uncomfortable, um, like a school, uh, a like a schoolboy who has forgotten his lessons, which uh, Weaver extends to say that that's what's going on in the modern world. We know that we can't just define words by external things, and we can't just define them by what we feel. We have to defer to some kind of universals, but the act of defining a word means that we're getting back to universal knowledge that we know. But the modernist is unwilling to admit that, and so he gets uncomfortable. Weaver says, quote, words, each containing its universal, are our reminders of knowledge, end quote. We can't even think without words. 
he posits to ask the reader to try doing it, and you can't. And this point alone, I think, is so fascinating. You can get into so much about this, about how we use language to to think, how different languages um, change the way that different people, uh, that, that thought processes work in different cultures in very particular ways, and what happens when people do not ever learn to speak properly or to speak at all, as in um, there are lots of studies of child psychology of what happens when children aren't taught how to speak and how they don't have, they, they don't have a conception of self or a conception of um, their relationship to the world in the same way that we do. It's very, very fascinating. Um, he then moves into attacking positivists where they are at least pointing out positivists attack on us by saying that positivists generally are against symbolism. Um, to fully use language is to grasp uh, concepts and be able to learn. Again, personally, as for me, is I don't. I look back at my education, and there was a huge, there was a, there was a major gap around the eighth grade when I started to learn Latin. Uh, before learning Latin, I did not really, I didn't, I didn't have much of a conception of English grammar. I mean, I did as much as you would as a seventh grader, but I didn't understand the deeper principles behind it. Um, and I, I, I look back into like early high school and I see that after learning the fundamentals of language and how language fits together, um, every aspect of my education changed, whether it was math, whether it was in learning history, whether it was in learning music, all of that was enhanced by learning how to properly control language. Um, Weaver goes back. Uh, Weaver also goes on to say that without full control of language, people fall into looseness and exaggeration. You can't fully and exactly specify what you are trying to say, and say that with the intention of it hearkening to a universal. You're forced to use um, to twist words in order to get your meaning across. And he has a bunch of great examples here. How um, when we take an extreme action on our side, it's courageous. When the enemy takes it, they're desperate. How we could be rugged, they're brutal. Whether it's an occupation or liberation. All these words me should mean different things. But when we abstract them from the universals, they become tools to be able to say whatever we want. Uh, this gets even worse when you apply to more words that are meant to hearken to important universals. Words like freedom, justice, mercy, and truth. When we take on, when we allow those words to lose their universal meaning, you, it can mean whatever you want, and indeed lead to completely polarized meanings. Uh, the only way to rectify this is through education, uh, which I believe he gets into in the next chapter. Uh, one aside here is that he talks about how we must teach students poetry good poetry, not the self-reflective or, um, or uh, let's see here, what does he call it? I think sentimental, I, I want to say. Sentimental, that's it, it, that's it, yeah. Uh, must teach students poetry, not sentimental poetry necessarily, but truly good poetry that gets at the core of what of, of the idea. He's always not opposed to emotion, he's not opposed to beautiful language, but only when it's um, furthering the ability to understand the universal and to understand a concept more fully. Um, Socratic dialogue is, or di di dialogue and dialectic is also good, but it must come alongside an unwillingness to compromise on definition. Uh, basically, students must be trained in the ability to identify limitations of language and the ability to get at contradictions through philosophy. But this leads to thinking and uh, growing in knowledge and not a, um, a compromise and a looseness of definition. So with that, we move into piety of justice, where I presume he's going to talk about education. 
Uh, that am, although primarily about impiety, but before I move to that, I just want to say that he brings up the dialectrician a couple of times, and that just has me thinking of, like, somebody calling up, you know, the di the local dialectrician and saying, like, hey, I can't figure out this, this definition, and, you know, this guy coming in and being like, well, there's your problem, you didn't have a proper understanding of words. Mm -hmm. um, yep, absolutely. Uh, but, so... Weaver has now established the metaphysical right of property with uh, the, the last chapter from the, the last podcast. Uh, and that has allowed humanity to re-enter the world um, and now has fixed communication via proper application of the word. Uh, and now, quote, approaches a crowning concept which governs man's att attitude toward the totality of the world. Uh, end quote. And here he begins by focusing on piety, or rather, modern humanities lack thereof. The first impiety he addresses is against humanity's elders, calling modern man a parasite, stating that he has, quote, taken up arms against, and he has effectually slain what former men have regarded with filial veneration, end quote. Uh, Weaver cites what is probably my favorite so Socratic dialogue, the youth for a problem, in which a young man is bringing suit against his father for murder, and yet is dead convinced that this is exactly what piety is. Socrates, himself on his way to a trial for his impiety, questions this man and leaves him with the conclusion that this is perhaps not the best way of piety. Weaver likens this young man to science and technology, and his father is the order of nature. Quote, for centuries, we have now been told that our happiness requires an unrelenting assault upon this order. Dominion, conquest, triumph, all these names have been used as if it were a military campaign. End quote. Incidentally, this reminds me of the language in Blade Runner 2049, itself quite the modern indictment of science and technology gone too far, in which the villain, Niander Wallace, states that we can, quote, storm Eden and retake her, end quote. Uh, our lack of filial piety has manifested itself in our lack of piety towards nature. In fact, Weaver sees a profound egotism in this attitude, that, quote, man has reached a point at which he will no longer admit the right of existence of things not of his own contriving, end quote. Excuse me. Uh, much of this position takes on the language of service to man, but in reality means an unconditional victory over nature. Uh, this, this sort of impiety is precise, or this is impiety precisely because it denies any sort of innate goodness to nature, or dare we say creation. The pride of the... The pride of the desire for conquest cannot be overstated. The solution Weaver proposes is to reinculcate piety in which man, quote, admits the right to exist of things larger than the ego, of things different than the ego, end quote. And part of this is allowing mystery within nature, of acknowledging that we neither know all nor possess all. Weaver riffs on the age-old bit of wisdom that is only in letting go that, we can, that one can truly possess anything. Noting that it is the youth who thinks ideas can overcome the world, but the wise and mature man who understands that while ideas matter, and one might say have consequences, uh, it is better to see them embodied, which means limited by reality. Quote, the humbler view of man's powers is the essence of piety, and it is, in the long run, more rewarding. For nature seems best dealt with when we respect her without allowing ourselves to want too fiercely to possess her. End quote. The way forward is therefore a middle ground between conquering and being conquered. Should we give in to our base animal instincts, justifying that it is only natural? Of course not. We are rational animals, human beings. But should we fly to the cities and abstract away all notions of physical reality under a layer of glass and concrete? No, both are each equally pernicious, as both make nature, ironically enough, the determiner of our destinies, the only difference being if the direction is based on repulsion or desire. Weaver now moves on from filial piety to fraternal piety, or the substance of other beings. This piety acknowledge, acknowledges that, quote, being has a right qua being, end quote. He takes the medieval code of chivalry as a pride example of this, proving that while he may not be a, a weeb, he is a red white knight. Chivalry was fundamentally concerned with the basic brotherhood of man, the, acknowledging the right to existence of both inferiors and even enemies. 
Weaver eviscerates the idea of unconditional surrender as playing God, usurping, quote, unlimited right to, disp- to dispose of the lives of others, end quote. This takes the form of two, or this takes the form of two kinds: the barbarian who destroys anything different simply because it is different, and the neurotic seeking to control others out of lack of integration of, on their own part. Fraternal piety demands that we understand that the other, much like nature, has an origin outside of themselves that we cannot account for. And Weaver claims that until we understand this about both our fellow humans and nature, we will not save, escape fratricide nor parasite. Manifesting as a third form of piety, impiety is contempt for the past. Weaver laments that, quote, most modern people appear to resent the past and seek to deny its substance for either of two reasons. One, it confuses them, or two, it inhibits them, end quote. He goes on to conclude, quote, if it confuses them, they have not thought enough about it. If it inhibits them, we should look with a curious eye upon whatever schemes they have afoot, end quote. Myth is vitally important. The heroes and martyrs of old aren't really dead, Weaver claims, quote, in a way they live on as forces, helping to shape our dream of the world, end quote. When we deny these forces, when we attempt to cut ourselves off from our past, we, quote, inter their memory with their bones and hope to create a new world out of goodwill and ignorance, end quote. It is in reading that past that we may come to a sober account of what humanity is capable of, both for good and for ill, providing a cure for egotism and shallow optimism, but also allowing hope amongst despair. Having described impiety in the abstract, Weaver now moves on to discuss specific examples, starting with a particularly spicy topic, the contempt of the natural order in, quote, the foolish instructive notion of the equality of the sexes, end quote. I've already been canceled as a COVID denier, so I guess this will just be in the nail in my coffin. I'll go ahead and add the standard disclaimer that we're going over someone's ideas, not necessarily endorsing them. Okay, go ahead, Twitter mob, do what you do what you're going to do. Ugh. Weaver rolls his eyes at the complete denial of the basic fact of reality that there are differences between men and women, and states that, quote, guys, wipe the smirks off your faces. It <laughs> um, states that, quote, profound differences of this kind seem only a challenge to the busy renovators of nature, end quote. He laments that this, quote, rage for equality, end quote, has obliterated every distinction between sexes, and that this subversion has robbed humanity not only of generations, but of sex itself. Uh, He uses the term sex here, by which I think he means gender, but I'm actually not entirely sure. (sighs) Weaver sees the entrance of women into the workplace not as an elevation, but as a degradation, noting that this puts women at the mercy of economic factors, whereas they had once been relatively remote from them. Setting women as an economic equal, they have become competitors with men, which he puts as another instance of the destruction of fraternity. Weaver sees this as having been a profound and transparent deception by men. Quote, the white slavers of business who traffic in low wages, the executives, the specialists in reduction, er, the specialists in reduction of labor costs, end quote, and accuses them of displacing women into a limbo, sorry, drifting between a sphere in which they were superior and a world in which they cannot find real standing. And here I'm just going to take another opportunity to say that my few co-workers were awesome and I respected them and their talents immensely and in no way think they should quit to become housewives. I just like to emphasize that. Um, we replaces the fault on men. It's a bad take. <laughs> what, that my... No, 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 no. Weaver, my female Weaver. co-workers should, uh, should no. just go up. <laughs> no, no, Weaver's, Weaver has a bad take here. This yes. is on par with his jazz. Yep, this is entirely on par with his jazz. I, uh, yep, I'd like to affirm that completely and utterly. Yes. Um, okay, we're almost done. We're almost, we're almost through this. Weaver places the fault on men uh, that when the gentleman faded, so did the lady. Weaver laments that the women of old knew that power lay in, quote, loyalty to what they are and not in imitativeness, exhibitionism, or cheap bids for attention, end quote, and concludes that, quote, if our society were minded to move resolutely toward an ideal, its women would find little appeal, I am sure, 
in lives of machine tending and money handling, end quote, and concludes that the modern displaced female has, quote, lost all queenliness and obtained nothing, end quote. And I'd just like to say that my female math professors are nothing short of intelligent, capable, and inspiring, and my female fellow students are just as capable as myself and the male counterparts. Please, this is, this is not my idea. Um, Finally, mercifully, Weaver moves on from this topic to the loss of respect for individuality as an example of fraternal impiety, uh, which he qualifies as personality, the, quote, irreducible character in every person and at the same time permits the idea of community, end quote. Personality affirms the private area of selfhood, but also acknowledges the obligation one has to their community and the transcendental, perhaps even because of the selfhood. Individualism is little more than selfishness and irresponsibility. Rationalism and the machine affirm individualism, but not personality. For rationalism is against the transcendent, and the machine has no room for nonconformity. The piety that solves this is for us to, quote, admit the right of to self-ordering of the substance of other beings, end quote. Uh, he then turns to the more, or the most vocal modern in piety, contempt for the past, of which the solution is a proper understanding of history, acknowledging that, quote, past events have not happened without law, end quote. That despite our desires to be free from the rule of history, much like our desire to be free from the rule of nature, one cannot escape it. Uh, history may not teach anything with finality, he does acknowledge, but that doesn't mean that it offers no lessons at all. The sin of modernism is pride, according to Weaver, pride and impatience, um, or rather pride revealed through impatience. The myth of the fall has always taught us this, and we find ourselves acting this out time and time again. We are unwilling to bear with nature with its conditions and constraints. We are not making ourselves like gods, Weaver says, but taking ourselves as we are and putting ourselves in the place of God. And to request modern humanity to acquiesce to nature and history, we are asking it to reject the child psychology mentioned a few chapters ago. Ironic in rejecting this psychology is that it comes with a rather childlike frame of mind that humanity is not independent, but rather dependent on the universe, which itself is perhaps dependent on something else. Uh, Weaver at this point in time starts concluding and, and says that Physicians sometimes ask of their patients the same question that Christ asked the blind man, do you really wish to get well? This isn't a blithe question, and Weaver puts this question to Western civilization. He detects signs of suicidal impulse within our fabric, that we are crying for madder music and stronger wine. And it is here where Weaver dispenses with secular language and notes that the departure of the West from its religious roots has planted the seeds of bitterness which he likens to the philosophies of cynicism, skepticism, and stoicism that grew out of ancient Greece's departure with its own religion. Bitterness, indeed, leads to destruction. Quote, when it becomes evident that the world's rewards are not adequate to the world's pain, and when the possibility of other world reward is denied, simple calculation demands the ending of all, end quote. And so the question posed to men who feel desperately unrewarded, do, quote, do they today wish to go on living or do they wish to destroy the world, end quote. Um, and even if bitterness can be overcome, such that civilization drunkenly nods a instance, the even more vexed question is if the patient is willing to undergo the procedure to get well. There will be a price to getting well, and a series of difficult questions will be posed to the masses. Quote, are you ready, we must ask them, to grant that the law of reward is inflexible and that one cannot, by cunning or through complaint, obtain more than he puts in? Are you prepared to see that comfort may be a seduction and that the fetish of material prosperity will have to be pushed aside in in favor of some sterner ideal. Do you see the necessity of accepting duties before you talk of freedoms? End quote. There is no way anyone will answer in the affirmative unless the proper ideal is before them. And Weaver amuses that it may be too late, that the degeneration has progressed such that the raising of such an ideal is impossible. Yet it is the duty, he concludes, that those who see the end looming must do what they can to catch the imagination of the world. 
must bail the ship even if the ocean is limitless and their bucket small. Even casting duty aside will not save them. Quote, nothing is more certain than that we are all in this together. Practically, no one can stand aside from a sweep as deep and broad as the decline of civilization, end quote. And if and when the fall comes, there will be no joy in those saying they told us so. But he isn't all pessimism. He sees ray rays of hope in the present efforts of those decrying the fall of the West and ponders that perhaps civilization may learn truth via Dolorosa, unpleasant a path though it may be. If the end is nigh and the sins of our father are being revisited upon our civilization, even then, Weaver hopes that the reality of such evil will spur, will spur a revival such as in the height of the Middle Ages. He concludes, quote, if such, is, if such is the most we can hope for, something toward the revival may be prepared by acts of thought and volition in the waning days of the West, end quote. And that's, uh, that's ideas have consequences. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, well, cue... with one notable exception, possibly, but. Yeah, cue, uh, yeah. Cue the applause for like probably like you know like three seconds of applause and then a like a pause and an intake of breath like ooh and then more applause yep um yep, pretty much no he was doing it like it really was kind of a strong conclusion that i was really getting into and then i read like okay he's talking about like distinctions between uh the genders okay this will be interesting and i was like well maybe he's just talked about like there's just simple you know distinctions between genders and it's going to keep kind of like vaguely abstract about it. it's like nope mm -hmm. hand women should never have left the household. Like. Yeah. Okay. Listen. All right, man. <laughs> if there's one person I want to get all my advice on interpersonal relationships between the the genders, it's a single 37 year old uh, English professor who's never held a, a thing a job down for more than five years. So, <laughs> pretty much. Uh. Yeah. I mean, obviously, not a good take there. Right. There was one part of it that was, I don't know, interesting, gives me pause, is, is he was talking about like how we put this ideal up and it makes it, it makes it like reprehensible for a woman to pursue like a life that even incorporates elements of being at home. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I know, like, obviously I got married super young and my wife is still finishing her undergrad. And like she's gotten a lot of like very interesting takes from fellow students, from like um, connections um, and like people like networking who are like, well, wait, what? Wait, you're married, and you're trying to have a career, but you're also you also want to have kids at some point. Like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Like, and so it's it's definitely like kind of a like just which I don't know. We don't think it's anything too radical, and it's great, but yeah, a lot of people do think it's quite radical and it doesn't fit in like that that sort of commitment does not at all fit into the modern um like ethos the modern even you could say teleology so i mean and that i think that weaver saw that coming is that that wasn't quite a thing yet in the 40s when he was writing this like it was still like marriage kids that kind of thing was still the norm um and it, i mean i guess it is still quite popular but it's definitely less prevalent and falling out of the norm and frowned upon to a degree so i don't know i don't know what how, i don't know how to take that along with like his comments about how about other aspects of womanhood that i think are totally off yeah um and yet he has this one tiny kernel where i'm like well i mean he has a point there that i don't know there's something where i i almost had to wonder like you could cross apply that to pretty much the general inversion of values and this doesn't 
apply just to women, but it applies to women and men. Why are we now measuring su- success based on the prestige of your job rather than the overall health of your family? And that is not a function of being a woman. That's a function of being a proper human. That if mm-hmm. your family is falling apart, but you yourself are a successful CEO, I mean, you're a failure of a human person, whether or not you're a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. So I I do have to wonder, well, and I mean, you could say something, something like societal values at that time. He, perhaps that was why he was saying it was a degradation. It was a dragging of women down rather than an elevation of women. Perhaps that was what he was saying of like, men are kind of mm-hmm. already fallen. Why didn't we try to ascend rather than just drag women down? Which I'm still not sure how much I'd buy that, but you're right. There was kind of a kernel that did seem to be ringing, but I think I would have rather viewed it as just general inversion of values on for society as a whole. Yeah, yeah there's a, I, I mean, it's it's certainly not the main point of the chapter, um, so we shouldn't give it too much more time. But uh, the the kernels of, of, you know, leaning in the right direction, if crudely stated, um, would be something like, um, I don't know, like JP2's observations in, in one of his encyclicals later on is that the worst versions of feminism encourage women, you know, to, to ape the worst inclinations of men. And that's not the kind of thing that yeah. is positive. You want to, um, there's a, a positive version of it. Um, and then the second thing is just that the market is a place where things are commodified. Everything is commodified in the market, in, in the public sphere that we live in. And, you know, and, and he comes from a socialist background, so he's implicitly critical of a lot of this. This is where his agrarianism comes in, is anti the commodification and the materialism that he sees in the U.S. Okay. That's, swift, that's swiftly growing. And so the home is one haven from that. But the more that the home is forced into the public, the more that that last, that one of those last refuge of, um, of, like unpaid labor, but unpaid labor in the sense that it's closer to being human, like you're saying, it, it's not to be alienated. It's not something that should be alienated. And I think that's that's what he's reacting against crudely, as as we've observed. Um, the other, uh, yeah, there was a, a lot of good stuff in this. When he's going over the the semantics and sort of like and scoffing at their wonder at this world that's that's swiftly changing, I thought that part was great. There was a line that that sounded again straight out of McIntyre, uh, talking about uh, uh, Hayakawa and and talking about how when arguments happen and you're and uh, uh, since uh, the the quote is a uh, quote since language expresses tendency and tendency has direction, those who differ over tendency can remain at harmony in only two ways: one by developing a complacency which makes possible the ignoring of contradictions, or two by referring to first principles, which will finally move the difference at the expense of one side, which is very McIntyrean in the sense that, uh, you know, there are these ir- there, these pre-rational first principles uh, that that have to, that that's the only way to actually have a conversation with someone. And really, honestly, that statement is very applicable to a lot of the politics of our times, where arguably a lot of the way that we've held things out of conflict is with the complacency, is by not, by, you know, keeping things out of, the conversation, live and let live. That's the liberalism as a philosophy's solution. But there are people on both sides now who are making the argument actually that you need to pick a first principle at the expense of a side, which is a it's a fascinating time to be alive. I, I think probably my favorite part of these two chapters was the do you want to get well um, section. I, I thought that was a particularly poignant um, question, especially so a, a lot of the times I've been reminded of amusing ourselves to death and uh it kind of the logical extension of that in in that a lot of these technologies that we've come up with kind of everyone actively acknowledges that they're not doing our society any good that our fabric is slowly 
disintegrating because of a lot of these things. And yet we find ourselves using them anyway. I, for me personally, with, mm-hmm. with Facebook, um, I'm still on Facebook, even though I know it's bad for me, even though I know it's not doing our society any good. And yet we still, I still use it. Um, and so his kind of litany of questions at the very end where he was saying like, well, are you actually willing to give up all these things? Are you willing to give up material comfort, uh, comfort in the exchange for a more ascetic life? Are you willing to, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the list goes on. Um, yeah, like, will you be, like, the guy who's currently the coolest guy uh, people are posting about on Twitter? And, like, will you live in a one-room deer shack for 47 years and just go out to hunt deer and come back and eat it? Like, are you willing to give up all of life just to kill deer all of the time? And just and that's your whole life. Like, you have to be willing to make that sacrifice if you want Western civilization to survive. You have to get in the deer shack and then stay in the deer shack. Sam? Yeah, I mean... I guess what he neglects is like when somebody is pathologically unwell. I mean, when they're when it is very rare that somebody that that person wants to get well because it's easy to um, it's very very easy to put your head in the sand and assume that and ignore it. Um, it's far easier to ignore sim- like like uh, symptoms of unwellness than it is to face it and treat it. I mean, like I was having a conversation with somebody, I guess it was, yeah, a few, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about, um, I mean, this is, this is a total tangent, so cut this out as much as you want, about um, early identification and screening for, like, critical um, illness, like, like uh, terminal illnesses and terminal cancers, and how nobody does it, even though, because we don't want to be told that we're unwell. Um, it's a, it's a, it's, I mean, it, I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this, but it's um I think it's a state of arrogance that we assume that our current position is better is like the best of all. I mean, this is this is um heck uh, I'm looking at the book Voltaire. This is Voltaire, right? We're living in the best of all possible worlds. You assume that you're living in the best situation and that to be told anything else about the world about and, and to be told that you are mistaken and that your conception of existence is mistaken is um you, you, it's impossible to hear that. And so you refuse to. So I think that that's like, it's, it's like, he's asking this question and it's a good question to ask. But I think that his mistake is that we're too far past the point of being able to, to ask if we want to get well, because we're not even able to hear that we are not well. But interestingly, um, like my, my response would be is that we have plenty of prophets of doom from all sides. I mean, mm-hmm. what Greta Thunberg has set up her children's revolution outside of COP26, like there's all sorts of things happening that there are people who who say that we're not well but what i think is squares this this circle would be to say that it's it's a like a psychological or a, or a like a episteme uh or the conditions of thought that's unwell that's that's what's unwell yeah. and that's what we're not willing to hear but we are you know like we're perfectly willing to critique um whatever the political system is or climate change or whatever i think that's that's more the core of of what is being got at well, see, I would, I would also interpret that as we are very quick to point out what's, what's wrong, what's flawed with anyone other than us or our side. Um, so it's, it, it is one thing to be able to say that global warming's ruining the country, or the, the those libs are ruining, those conservatives are ruining the world. But it's, it's another thing to say what, are, what am I doing to ruin the world? What am I, what is my side doing to ruin the world, and how can we fix it? And that's, that's the introspection that people don't want to really dive into. I, I have to imagine. Exactly. Like, why aren't I living in the deer shack? 
Um, so what the is other... the deer tag? Okay, I'll bite. I'll, I'll, I'll bite. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, it's, it's just a guy on Twitter, uh, and it's an article about how he's just lived in a one-room deer shack with from whence he goes out and hunts deer, and then just that's what he does. He's done it for fifty years, uh, and that's all he does. That sounds um, horrible. No, I it it it's a it's an aesthetic life. It's 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 just like Saint Gregory, except for lions, it's deer, right? Or Anthony, Anthony, just like Saint Anthony. Uh, it's uh, but it's deer. Did it's Saint basically... Anthony kill lions? I, yeah, that doesn't sound were, right. If they were demons, I... probably. I don't know. Okay. Um. Uh. What? No further questions. <laughs> uh. All right. I, I'm trying to think. Uh. Th there were some um some other things here too. Uh. The one that I'm just going to keep coming back to because it's my 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 favorite thing um, in this book and probably the primary thing that I'm going to take away uh, on this second read through is again the idea of symbolism and why uh, and, and and this also ties into the hatred of the past as as something that constrains you as as something that we must be better than those in the past and the past imparts to us because they can't be here presently they they you know whatever tradition is democracy of the dead. And a lot of that is through the symbols and actions that they pass down, which are the ideas and the hand of the past reaching into the present. He he calls it an ideational world because it's a it's a bridge to that world in, in which there are pure ideas that are sort of invading the present in symbols, in physical objects that we endow with um, with uh, properties and, and link them to I ideals. So the power, quote, the power of symbolism is greatly feared by those who wish to who wish to expel from life all that is non-rational in the sense of being non-utilitarian, as witness the attack of Jacobins on crowns, cassocks, and flags. End quote. And then on the other hand, which I, I'm not sure, did you guys get to read the the afterward as well? Mm -hmm. Okay, so we might have to do one quick follow up, maybe in place of an article section, um, because that's fascinating talking about his life because he because he was a socialist uh, through the th the twenties and thirties. But then basically became sort of he rejected socialism because he hated all the socialists he met, but and all the southern agrarian folks were super nice. So he sort of became a socialist come southern agrarian, but also had critiques of that as well. One of the 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 quotes, interestingly, in in his um uh in one of his letters that's cited in, in the afterward is talking about fascism, which of course is, you know, makes heavy use of symbols and tries to force these ideas in in into reality in in, in a way to uh, unnaturally it's it's it, it, it's it, it's trying to bring an ideational or an ideological world into manifestation immediately without reference to the past or, or with with pseudo reference to the past. Uh, he says, I uh, quote, it is amazing how few people can see that fascism is actually a form of socialism trying by crude violence to preserve some of the traditional values, end quote, which I thought was just a fascinating quote in the idea of like the the, the fascism of, of Germany and of uh, Italy and, and, and Spain of really being a reaction to these problems that he's talking about, but just, you know, obviously a horrible way of, of trying to deal with them, but trying to get at the heart of the, of the um, civilizational decay that he's talking about. Yeah. The uh, kind of the, the undoing of the past or the attempt to kind of at least uh, start over from a completely blank slate puts in mind um, Soviet Russia, just that, this idea that we will, we will wipe aside the past. We will completely remove any sort of remembrance of the old world and we will usher in this new age which in their mind would have been a paradise if they could have only gotten rid of all those messy humans that, and they, they certainly tried to. Uh, so I, it, it is interesting that fascism is kind of almost a, a lighter take on that in that, well, we'll keep the past, but just the bits that are useful to us. Uh, and the past doesn't really work like that. Anything else on this or can I transition? I think we're good. I mean, this is a good transition to China. Mm-hmm.
All right. Well, well. Speaking of of letting the past die and trying to form the perfect society and all that, our article this week is the triumph and terror of Wang Huning in Palladium Magazine, and it starts off with a little anecdote. Uh, quote: One day in August 2021, Zhao Wei disappeared. For one of China's best-known actresses to physically vanish from public view would have been enough to cause a stir on its own. But Zhao's disappearing act was far more thorough. Overnight, she was erased from the internet. Her social media page with its 86 million followers went offline, as did fan sites dedicated to her. Searches for her many films and television shows returned no results on streaming sites. Her name was scrubbed from the credits of projects she had appeared in or directed, replaced with a blank space. Online discussions uttering her name were censored. Suddenly, little trace remained of the 45-year-old celebrity. It was as if she had never existed. And she wasn't alone. Other Chinese entertainers also began to vanish as Chinese government regulators announced a heightened crackdown intending to disperse with, quote, vulgar internet celebrities promoting lavicious lifestyles and to resolve the problem of chaos created by online fandom culture. Those imitating the effeminate or androgynous aesthetics of Korean boy band stars, colorfully referred to as little fresh meat, were next to go with the government vowing to resolutely put an end to sissy men appearing on the screens of China's impressionable youth, end quote. And you also may have have heard of China in the context of banning video games for under 18s to only three hours a week spaced out over various days. And there's very much actually very much in line with ideas have consequences, this reaction to this perceived social rot. And as it turns out in China, there is an intellectual architect, as it were, of this project. And that is Wang Huning, who's a member of the Chinese Communist Party's seven-man Politburo Standing Committee, and he's considered uh, the top ideological theorist of the party, the ideas man behind many of uh, Xi's political concepts, including China Dream, the anti-corruption campaign, the Belt and Road Initiative, and its more assertive foreign policy. Um, And this guy's fascinating, and there's a lot of great articles that have come out about him recently, uh, especially in context of chaos in the United States. Uh, He sort of was thrust into the limelight, and uh, which is distinct from his normal status of being an eminence grease in China, as Chinese view- viewers were trying to understand the protest of what's going on in America and conflicts of race and and all this. And he has a book that he wrote in uh, 1988 that he wrote when visiting America for six months as a visiting scholar. And he, you know, wandered about, uh, basically, the article describes him as a Chinese Alexis de Tocqueville, although instead of being positive, he's very, very negative, because what he found disturbed him and shifted his view of the West and and the consequences of its ideas. That's actually from the article, <laughs> which is in, which is incredible. So his, his book was called America Against America. Quote, in it, he marvels at homeless encampments in the street of Washington, D.C., out of control, drug crime, and poor black neighborhoods in New York and San Francisco, corporations that seem to have fused themselves to and taken over the responsibilities of government. Uh, He concludes that America faces an unstoppable undercurrent of crisis produced by its societal contradictions, including between rich and poor, white and black, uh, democratic and oligarchic power, egalitarianism and class privilege, individual rights and collective responsibilities, cultural traditions, and the solvent of liquid modernity, end quote. So basically, Alexis de Tocqueville, but America sucks. He has this very apocalyptic view of the United States that Americans are just blind to, that they refuse to acknowledge because of their uh, philosophy of individualism, that they won't actually deal with social and cultural problems, one, because of the individual aspect, but also because they think of all these problems as scientific and technological problems that can be solved by moving levers and pushing buttons as opposed to deep societal contradictions. And that this, quoting from the article, radical nihilistic individualism at the heart of American liberalism 
end quote, is the core issue with all of these. So sort of in sum, many of these changes in China, these social policy, for lack of a better word, trying to make these dramatic changes, targeting celebrities, uh, targeting video games, are trying to combat perhaps too little too late, probably too little too late, assuming that they're justified and, you know, possibly, you know, justified internally for them, probably too little too late, trying to resist this corrosive American ideology that's basically gone all over the world and, and to China as well. And so China's more aggressive posture, resisting global liberal influence, um, its attempts to revive parts of its own culture, all of these can be linked back in some way to uh, Wang Huning's thought. And uh, it's why celebrities have, you know, been vanishing in China. Yeah, America sucks. But also, this is a classic tactic of the Chinese Communist Party is basically like, when faced with any kind of criticism, just turning it back on America. So and I mean, it sounds like a person who's very insecure because he knows that his country's economy is about to collapse in 20 years when the entire population ages out and they can't support their rapidly aging population due to social engineering policies. Wow, Sam's a baron on rising China. You don't think that they're going to pull it off? They're not going to take. Oh, I think they're going to. I think they're going to pull off. I, I think they're going to pull off for a little bit. I, I worry, and I'm speaking from both your mentor's words. I worry about what happens when they collapse and they're worried about what happens when they collapse. Mm -hmm. And so they've got a brief window right now where they can, where they can actually exert some influence, but they're going to start declining quickly. Yep. And the question is how long can they hold on to that control? And I think they'll be able to hold on to it for quite a while. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they're just going to totally collapse, but I don't know. I, I have trouble hearing his critiques in, um, in like a genuine tone because this is at least the same department that when when criticized for the genocide that they are currently committing, his response was, well, I mean, the United States had slavery and the United States like killed, you know, thousands of Native Americans and cleared them out of their land. And there's no justice there. So what are you who are you to critique us? I mean, that's disgusting argumentation. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's again, it's manipulate. It's it's weaver it's manipulation of words and, and we in america have no way to come back to that which is the, i think the main problem is that they say that and say oh yeah well you're just as bad or you're awful so therefore we're gonna do the we're gonna erase celebrities to show that we're superior because we really care about like economic success and cultural success um and we have no way to respond to that and show that it's coming from a foundationless and vapid philosophy that can and will only lead in death. The only response that I would say is this, the book referencing the, or his critique of American uh, rot, as it were, was written in 1988. So this is even before Tiananmen Square, for that matter. Mm. And he also didn't have a position of power. So in terms of it being a genuine critique, I mean, the article is called, and I think appropriately so, The Triumph and Terror is he, I think it's it's very believable that he saw the seeds of things in the United States that he that, that horrified him. I think, I mean, we just read a book, a, a whole book by a guy who also saw things in a in roots in American culture that that terrified him. I think you're absolutely right that it's, you know, functionally, it, it plays out in more recent stuff and in interviews as, you know, as pure power politics and, you know, opportunistic uh, ideological sniping. One thing that the article does note is that uh, Americans hate to hear bad things about themselves, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so ab abhorrent actions 
of the Chinese government notwithstanding, I think there is something interesting in that the, the Chinese government has unparalleled ability to crack down on its own culture. Maybe the only country rivaling, rivaling its power would be like North Korea. Oh. Or Iran, or Saudi Arabia. You think? Better than North Korea? I mean, like... Not better they're... than North Korea, but, right, but, they're, but they're up there. Oh, okay. China, oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, better being an interesting word there. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, there, the fact that I, I, there, there was this uh, this comment um, that this is a this is a common undercurrent that's spreading throughout the entire world. That this isn't just affecting America. This is affecting Russia. This is affecting uh, China. This is affecting pretty much every single country, and they're all trying to figure out how to do it. And it is interesting how America certainly isn't dealing with modernity, post-modernity, the kind of horrors of the the modern world that we just finished a whole book about, but neither is China. It's not able to figure out how it is, and it has unparalleled control of, Mm -hmm. or maybe not unparalleled, but rarely paralleled control over its own people, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I think my main takeaway was, oh my goodness, like kind of all different approaches of, of all sorts are not able to handle whatever ideology sweeping the apparently entire world for the past 100, 150 years. And so I found that fascinating, that even China's control isn't able to stop it. Morally repugnant though it may be, one would have thought, well, maybe it actually has a shot at kind of nipping these seeds of modernity nihilism in the bud. (laughs) Yeah, let's nip these seeds of modernity in the bud. I'm sure... (laughs) In 2021, oh man, this modernity thing is getting real popular. We better nip this. We 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 better nip this puppy b- b- before it really takes off. No, uh, but 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 I. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> but I I definitely agree, and 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 I think that's probably the single biggest take that's unsaid in this article, which is that despite the you know this apparently uh I- ideological vision that this guy has has had and his huge power that he's gained over time, we are all impotent. In the face of you know modern liberal global capitalism, you can't do it. You can't beat it. Uh, not even COVID could, uh, at, at least not yet. Uh, but anyway, uh, when people talk about capitalism and stuff, they tend to get angry. And when one is angry, they tend to rant. Sam, what do you got? Um, in stricter fashion, I'm not. I'm going to have kind of an ambiguous rant. It's more of a curiosity that arose this week. It's your New York curiosities. So should should we just change this to Stephen and Brevin rant, and then Sam like? Tells some us. random crap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ambiguities no. with Sam and then rants with Brevin and Steven. Okay, so here's here's the deal. I li- we live in this um this pre war apartment building in in Brooklyn, New York, right? And it's getting very chilly in New York City. It's like we're we're in the Great Frozen North and on the water, and it's just it's it's very cold and not fun to walk around outside. And so you'd expect that this is time to be turning on our radiators because it's all radiator. Um, heated building, but it's not actually. Actually, we've had to turn on our air conditioning. And the reason is that we're, it took me a while to figure this out because we're, it's like 45 degrees outside. Our windows have almost no insulation and yet we are sweating inside and it's like almost 80 degrees. The reason, because in every room of our apartment, we've got these huge pipes that run up the walls up to all the, the set, the five stories on top of us that supply all of their radiators. And so as as the rest of the building has turned on the radiators to deal with the cold, we now have our windows open and our air conditioning on all day to try to stay cool enough to live in here. And so it's more just, it's more just very entertaining. I'm 
I'm in the living room right now just because there are so many fans trying to push the a- the AC out from the bedroom. It's it's uh very loud in there. So uh yeah, the the pros of living in old buildings. It's it's more just kind of funny for me. Um also very inconvenient. Remarkable. Does it at least keep like the heating bill down cuz you're kind of like riding on the tails of other people's heating well, You got to run the AC. So the, oh yeah. The problem is the problem is that we don't pay for water and or heat or anything. Like we pay uh... for gas. The gas costs almost nothing. Electricity is expensive. <laughs> so that is an incredible problem to have. That's great. It's, yeah, no, it's I'll, I'll turn the AC off for like half an hour and the temperature just shoots up. So Could anyway, you say that's the problem with heating. Hey, eating. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'd like to plug our sister podcasts with our cousins who are all plumbers who do the the problem with heating. <laughs> heating. Uh, they're yeah. all HVAC people. Yeah. Um, all anyway, right, uh, for my rant. Uh, I was in a meeting the other day, and and this is a meeting uh, called the All Hands Meeting uh, for for the bureau that I work in. And it's because everyone at my organization, we, you know, we like to think that we deal with urgent issues. We like to think that we're dealing with important things. So we like to, you know, do some like military terms and whatever. Like we always say copy or, or whatever. So we're like, this is the All Hands Meeting, all, all hands on deck. Uh, but the meeting opened with the head of the division. Very serious guy, you know, career bureaucrat. Um, you know, smart guy, obviously. And uh, the funniest thing was just watching his face as, as he said these following words and just him having to understand what he's saying as he's saying it. Uh, and what he opened with was, uh, all right, good morning, folks. Uh, you may have known that the meeting invite changed. Uh, we're, uh, we are changing the name of the uh, all hands meeting to the all staff meeting due to possible discrimination against people. And then he paused. And he paused for like a good, like noticeable, like second and a half. And then he finished with uh, uh, people who aren't fully abled, you know, uh, in line with our diversity, equity and inclusion priorities. Uh, But the best thing was just while he was pausing, you could see the reality of what he was saying crashing in his brain and realizing that he didn't want to say that we're changing the name due to possible discrimination against people who don't have hands. And it was amazing. just seeing him have to grapple with the reality that he almost said that, that he almost said those words, which is like out of an SNL skit about this topic was beautiful. And that's my rant. That man deserves Thanks, a hand. <laughs> Good man, folks. <laughs> oh, man. I oh, Sam, don't be pointing all your fingers. I have to get my hand kerchief to wipe my tears from laughing. Uh, all right. Got to hand it to you. That was Good. <laughs> We did this in our group chat for a solid like twenty lines, and we're not going to make you listen. We to could that. reproduce it. I'm just no. saying it could be kind Deep. of fun. Do your rant. Th- okay. Thumbs up on that rant, Brevin. <laughs> hey. Okay. Um. I guess this will be kind of a rant on on par for my shtick on typing up too many words. Uh, word limits. They are the worst. So. I was applying for a fellowship recently, and in this, the, the, the nice thing about this fellowship was that it was actually pretty low bar. Tree, uh, you just needed two recommendation letters, uh, a C, uh, you know, an updated CV, and a uh, a five hundred word essay on kind of what you're studying. What you, you got to give them a pitch and kind of tell them what their money is going to be going for. Trying to encapsulate a computational physics, a, a computational physics problem in five hundred words is mind-bogglingly difficult. You have to set up what, like, what the problem is, why it's important, why people should care, and then what you're going to do about it, all within 500 words, all within a single, single space page. 
Like, that is insanely difficult. Like, even just, uh, like, I, di- I didn't get into the math pretty much at all. Just trying to describe the problem and trying to figure out, like, how how to say this isn't just some abstract theoretical thing. This is actually a big issue. And these are the current techniques we have. And this is why the, these current techniques are flawed. And this is what we can do about it. And this is why I think I, this is a good approach. Blah, blah, blah. 500 words is the, like, that. it's almost a joke how small that is. And it leaves no room for references. It leaves, or it, like, I can't refer to papers because that would eat up my word count. I can't go on long philosophical tangents about we have more data than medieval kings, which is like one of my nice go-to lines I stole from a professor. It's it's just the worst. So 500 word limit is, it, it's just the devil. Oh, hi, I'm Steven. Word limits are bad. Imagine trying to write a thank you note in less than 500 words. Imagine trying to write a greeting card. Imagine trying to say hello to someone in less than 500 words. It's impossible. Can't do it. And I'm going to read my 12-page summary of a 12-page chapter. Um, all right. Each page deserves its own book, okay? <laughs> Uh, well, I do believe we have a hard stop coming up, uh, so we'll end it there for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, I just have consequences, so go have ideas. Make consequences. Steven, the irony of you saying word limits are bad no we need to give everyone no you're right steven you're right no one should have word limits except for you you get word limits no it's no. not fair i just have so many interesting things to say at least i find them interesting no one else does but i do